Well, we'll begin today in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Good to see you this morning. Glad you're here with us. Continuing our uh, study through the book of Philippians. So chapter 3, this is number 15 in our in our study through the book. We'll be in chapter 4 here pretty soon, winding up the book in a few more Sundays. We're going to we are going to read the last uh, the last few verses of Philippians three. Initially, when I was looking at this text, I was going to begin to preach in verse uh, seventeen and go to the end of the chapter, and we're going to read that today. Uh, but uh, what I realized as I was getting into my study is that uh, there was no way that we could complete everything that we wanted to talk about or needed to speak about in all four of those verses. So we're going to look at 17 and 18 and uh, and 19 in particular detail today, and we'll look at 20 and 21 on next Sunday. So Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin here in verse 17. Philippians 3 and verse 17. Brethren, Join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the workings by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. A talented sculptor was once uh, commissioned to carve a lifestyle statue or life-sized statue of a lion out of one single boulder, one gigantic rock. He did a magnificent job, and after months and months and thousands of hours of work, it was presented to the public. And at the unveiling of his sculpture, uh, someone asked him how he could accomplish such an incredible masterpiece out of one huge boulder. He said, well, it was tedious work, but the vision was simple. I just chipped away everything that didn't look like a lion. Sounds simple, of course. Tedious work, but he said the vision was simple. I just chipped away everything that didn't look like a lion. When I read that story, I thought it was a, it was a perfect illustration of the process of sanctification. That God is diligently chipping away at us to remove everything that doesn't look like Jesus. We've used the word sanctification many times, and I'm sure that you remember that it simply means growing in holiness, becoming more holy, being distinctively different, being set apart for a particular purpose. God is the master sculptor. He is chipping away uh, from us all of the things in our lives that don't look like the Lord Jesus. Remember, if you were with us last week, that our, that our God-given purpose, God's purpose in saving us, is to be like 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in Romans 8, 29. He predestined that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. The whole plan of why God is saving us is to make us Christ-like. We will ultimately become just like the Lord Jesus Christ in a, with, with, with a new body and, and, and fullness of knowledge. We'll never turn into God. Don't, don't get that kind of misunderstanding. But we will, we will be in, like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, when we get to heaven, we will be like the Lord Jesus Christ. The, 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 the uh, Apostle John said uh, that when we see him, we will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. But in the meanwhile, in this life, as we are moving through this life, God is working on us to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So every trial, every hardship, every challenge, every blessing, Every open door, every closed door, they're all designed by God to grow us in holiness and to increase our Christ-likeness. That is the essence of the Christian life, the purpose, the process rather, of pursuing Christ-likeness. We become more and more like the Lord Jesus, simply stated, that's what the Christian life is all about. You may remember when Jesus came and called his disciples, he said, follow me. That, that's still our command today. The whole issue of Bible-based Christianity is following Christ and becoming more and more like Him. The Apostle John said, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, if you, if you abide in Christ, then you ought to walk as Christ walked. You ought to live as Christ lived, 1 John 2.6. Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said a couple of different times, he said, be followers of me just like I am a follower of Christ. So Christ called us to be like Him. The Apostle John reminds us to be like Him. Paul says, imitate me like I, am, like I am imitating Christ. So the goal of every person who says that they know the Lord should be to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the thing which we pursue. That should be our lifelong purpose. That's about as basic as you can get. That's be like Jesus. But you may ask, aren't we supposed to be glorifying God? You know, I mean, you're living for the glory of God. Absolutely. And we'll be doing that when we're being like Jesus. Shouldn't we be witnessing to our friends and our family, telling them about the Lord? Yes, we should. And we'll be doing that when we're being like Jesus. Doesn't the Bible, for you married fellows, doesn't the Bible tell me to dwell with my wife in an understanding way? The book of 1 Peter. Yes, the Bible says that. And we will be doing that, men, when we are being like Jesus. A lady might say, I want to do a better job of ministering to my husband. We'll be doing that when we're being like Jesus. If you have kids or grandkids, you may say, I want to be the best parent I can be. I want to be the best grandparent I can be. We will be doing that when we are being like Jesus. Our young people may say, I want to be a good friend. I want to be a good testimony to my classmates. Well, we'll be doing that when we are being like Jesus. And on and on and on we could go. My point being, when we say, be like Jesus, it's not just some pat answer, some, some cute little cliche, some nice saying. It is, it is a philosophy of life that is rooted in the teaching of the Scripture. And it should govern every decision, every response, every reaction, every choice, every word, every thought, every attitude. Be like Jesus. 
Now these next few verses in Philippians that we just read contain that theme of being like Jesus, being Christ-like. And the Apostle Paul gets, gets very practical in these verses because a lot of people ask, how does somebody go about being like Jesus? How do you pursue that goal? Help me understand that. And I want to give you several answers to that, just a couple of them today. And we'll look at some more of them next week. But how do you do that? We say, well, you know, you need to read the scriptures. That's true. You need to spend time with God's people, fellowshipping in church. That's true. You need to, you know, you need to read the Bible. You need to spend time in prayer. All those absolutely true. But Paul goes even further in some very practical ways in these verses to help us understand how we can pursue that walk of Christ-likeness. The first one is very, very obvious. You have to know Jesus in a personal way. You have to know Him as your Savior. You have to know that you are forgiven. You have to, you have to, uh, you have to realize, of course, that you're a sinner, and you have to realize your need for forgiveness, and you come to Christ to receive that forgiveness. You've bowed before the Lord Jesus in submission to Him as your Savior and Lord. You've done what Paul described in the earlier verses here in chapter 3, when he said, I considered all my own personal goodness as worthless compared to Christ. And he said, I want to be found in him, having the perfect righteousness of Jesus given to you by faith in Christ. Then you continue to get to know him personally because you read his word. You, you learn more about Jesus. You get to know him better because you are reading and studying his word. And all of that is rather obvious. If, if, if you're going to be Christ-like, then you have to know Jesus in a personal way. And you have to be growing in that relationship. But the second thing that Paul deals with in these verses, the second answer to that, is you have to follow godly examples. Look at verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, in other words, walk like I am, as you have us for a pattern. Paul had told the Corinthian church twice, we said a moment ago, to, to imitate him because he was imitating Christ. So here he says it again, join in following my example, he says, and make a note of the people who are following my example. He said, you have us for a pattern, so follow those godly examples. Now, we need to understand, of course, that the Apostle Paul was not perfect. He just said in the previous verses, I've not attained perfection. We just read that a week or two ago. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when he's writing his letter to, 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 uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Not, I was the chief of sinners, but I am the chief of sinners. And surely he understood the principle there in 1 John. In fact, hold your finger here and flip over to 1 John chapter 1 for just a second. Let me show you two verses there. 1 John chapter 1. And part of the reason why I, I, I keep re-emphasizing this with you as the weeks pass is that there is a theology out there today. It's all over Christian TV. It's all over certain aspects of Christian radio. And, and, it, and they, they teach that if you can do this, 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 and this, you will be so close to God that you will be perfected and you're not going to sin. Some people say you become totally sinless. Some people you say you, became, you become almost sinless. And yet the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. 
It says we can live a victorious life. We can win the victory over sin. But to think that, that we somehow have arrived at some point when we don't sin is just absolutely ludicrous. First John chapter 1, I know you got your, your place there. Look at verse Look at verse, uh, at verse 6. There we go. Thank you. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Then you've got the great verses we all read and quote, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And then the great passage there in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What, what's John saying there in verse 8? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John is saying, I'm writing this to you so that you can live a more victorious life. You can get, you can rise above many debilitating sins that continue to, to, to wreck you and pull you down. But he said, sooner or later you're going to blow it because we still have our sin nature. But thank God we have that advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's wonderful. So when we we come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, we don't get our sinful nature eradicated. But now we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us so that we can battle against our sin, sin nature. But we still have problems with the flesh, as the Bible calls it, the old sinful nature. Paul is saying, I'm a sinner, I have problems with my flesh, but I am pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness. So follow my example. And you know, that's, in a sense, that's what makes his example so important and so significant. It, because people will often say, well, I know I need to be like Jesus, but you know what? Jesus was perfect and I just can't be perfect. You're right. But you know what Paul says? I am pursuing Christ-likeness, and I am not perfect. But you can follow me. You see, what, what, what I need, and what we all need, is we need somebody who models the way to live. Somebody who shows us the climbing process. Somebody who has walked the path of life, and they're following the Lord. How do I deal with the struggles of life? How do I deal with disappointment? How do I deal with trials and temptations? How do I deal with pride? How do I deal with my sin when I stumble? It, 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 it is so helpful to my spiritual life and to your spiritual life to be able to follow someone who has been there before and is willing to talk with us about it, to encourage us, to guide us, to listen to us. We can read the Bible and we should, but, but it's very helpful to have a, a real-life flesh-and-blood person to help lead us. We call them role models or mentors. The Apostle Paul says we need them. And he further says that's what I want to be. He said, I'm not the perfect model. The perfect model is Jesus. But I am somebody you can follow because I am definitely pursuing 
Christ-likeness. So he says, brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. You know, Paul is such, the Apostle Paul is such an amazing example to follow because there is so much information about him in the New Testament. He, he dominates the book of Acts from chapter 13 on. And God used him to write 13 of our letters, our epistles in the New Testament. The word epistle just means a formal teaching letter. And Paul wrote virtually half the New Testament. So, so we get to see through all of that writing and all of that information, but we can see so much of Paul's heart for God. He's, he's a role model of patience and endurance and suffering. He's a role model for dedicated service to Christ. He's a role model for handling relationships and handling earthly possessions and for setting godly priorities. Now, there is so much information written by Paul and about Paul that he becomes a fantastic mentor for anyone who wants to follow the Lord Jesus. But it even goes beyond that. He says, note those who so walk as you have us for, as you have us for a pattern. So Paul says, don't just follow me. He says, observe others who live according to the same pattern. Find godly people who are following the Lord Jesus, who are pursuing Christ-likeness, who are living by the Word of God, and, and get, get connected with them. Climb the mountain with them. See, that, that's part of the purpose of church fellowship and small group Bible study gatherings and inviting people to your home. We, we can climb the mountain together. That's why we say to folks many times, watch out who your friends are. Watch out who you hang out with. Watch out how many folks that you spend lots and lots of time with. Because if they are going a different direction, if they are going away from the Lord, they're going to pull you that, that direction. That's, that's the nature of human beings. That's why the Bible calls us sheep. We are herd animals. I mean... Sheep aren't the smartest <laughs> creatures on the block, and half the time neither are we when it comes to spiritual issues. So Paul says, follow me, and he said, note those who are following Christ. Get connected with them. Find these godly people who are pursuing Christ-likeness. Get together with them. Let's climb the mountain together. So, so if we're going to pursue our God-ordained destiny, Christ-likeness, we have to have a growing personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we need to follow godly examples. Then the third thing Paul speaks about, which was what we'll wind up with today, he says, avoid gospel enemies. Verse 18, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And note Paul says, there are many enemies of the cross. Not just a few here and there, but many. And of course, you know, when he talks about the cross, he's not talking about the piece of wood. He's talking about what Jesus did on the cross, what we call the finished work of Christ. There are many enemies of the cross. They don't broadcast that. They act like they're followers of Jesus. Paul says they are enemies of the cross. And Paul says, I tell you this weeping. It's heartbreaking to this dedicated apostle to see so much theological confusion and theological corruption that was already creeping into the New Testament church even in his day. And although he doesn't name these enemies of the cross, which is fine because today we wouldn't know who they were anyway, but he does something better than name them. He describes them. And that's great because then we can look at 
types of teachers rather than at personalities. And, and he gives us four descriptions of enemies of the cross. Look at verse 19. He said, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. First thing he says, the enemies of the cross don't necessarily deny the cross, they're just adding to it, and he says their end is destruction. You see, he talked about early in chapter 3, people who were putting all of these regulations on people saying, if you, if you uh, are going to be saved, you have to do this, 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 and this, and you've got to stop doing this, 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 or else you can't actually be saved. And Paul says, no, faith in Christ is what saves us. Are you going to stop doing certain things once you come to Christ? Yeah, you are, but not because God's giving you the list to earn your way to heaven. And he says, these fellows, their end is destruction. They're not really saved. They don't truly know the Lord is their Savior. Their destiny is destruction. You see, you can, you can, and I've told you this several times in the last few weeks, you can believe all of the factual information about Christ. You can believe all the factual information about Christ, and you can also teach that you have to add to what he did in order to be forgiven. People do it all the time. And that will ultimately send you to hell. If a person teaches that it takes more than faith in the finished work of Christ, if it takes more than trusting Jesus' death and resurrection, if a person teaches that it takes more than that for you to be forgiven, Paul says they are headed for destruction. Their end is destruction. The second thing he says is, whose God is their belly. Interesting phrase to us in modern, modern day America. In, uh, in the ancient world, uh, people believed that the stomach or the abdomen was the center of your emotions and the center of your physical desires. You could look at, I could look at my sweetheart and say, oh, sweetie, I love you with all my stomach. I'm sure she would not be moved. Unless it was after a big meal, maybe, I don't know. You know, oh, I just, you know, we, of course, we use the term heart. We have the, the, the hallmark syndrome, you know, everything's in your heart. But in ancient times, they believed that, that, the, that the center of your emotions and your physical desires was in your stomach. And, of course, when you're hungry, where do you feel it? When you're nervous or you're scared, where do you feel it? And so, and so when they say, you know, you're, all those emotions are coming out of your abdomen, that's, that's where you tend to feel it physically, and that's why they spoke about that. And then so when he says, whose God is their belly, he simply means they are worshiping their desires, worshiping their impulses, worshiping their feelings. If your God is your belly, you're living by your feelings. You're doing whatever you feel like doing. You're, you're being driven by physical desires. You are motivated by emotions. And Paul says that's what these, that's what these guys are here. They, they are motivated, motivated by what they feel. They simply worship all the desires that they have. doesn't matter what God's Word said. I just feel like this should be true. I just feel like I should do this. The third thing he says is their glory is in their shame. means they brag about things that they should be ashamed of. They brag about everything they've done. They brag about how good they are. They brag about how free they are in Christ to do whatever they want. I've heard that many times. People have said, oh, it's so wonderful to be saved. You can just do whatever you want. Well, no, you can't. 
Not if you're going to be Christ-like, you can't. You got to do, do what what Jesus did. You don't do what you want. You do what you do what, what Jesus wants. But there are a lot of folks out there, even a lot of a lot of preaching out there. We are so wonderfully free in Christ. I can just do anything. Well, no. Paul says their glory is in their shame because they brag about how free they are in Christ to do what they want. They go so far as to say that it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. It's just my flesh. It doesn't matter. God saved me in my spirit and God didn't save me on the basis of what I do. So it doesn't matter what I am. That's only half true. God didn't save me because of who I am. But he also didn't save me to stay in my sin. He saved me to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't free me from the penalty of sin so that I could live like the devil. He didn't free me from the curse of sin so that I could live in sin the rest of my life. It doesn't even make sense. If God didn't care if I lived in sin, then why would he even bother saving me? Salvation is is far more than a fire escape from hell. If that's all people are trying to use salvation for, then they are spitting on the cross of Christ. And Paul says they are enemies of the gospel. And then the fourth thing he says about them, he says they set their mind on earthly things. You see, if they are adding to the gospel, if they are saying that Christ isn't enough, then they're into ceremonies and rituals to score points with God. And if they're just ignoring the gospel message of holiness and saying just do anything you want, then they're into worldliness and carnal pursuits and they think we're free in Christ to just live like the devil. Either way, they're focused on the things of this world. They are living with pride on the one hand or they're living with selfishness on the other hand. They are obsessed with the things of, uh, of this world. This is what he means by they set their mind on earthly things. They are obsessed with the stuff in the world, houses and cars and money and bank accounts and trips and self-promotion and clothes and accumulating more and more and more and more stuff. Not that any of those things are inherently evil, but when that becomes our life focus, then our minds are set on earthly things. Jesus said the great verse, we've quoted it many times, Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Our priority always needs to be the kingdom of God, not focused on the things of this earth and the things of this life. You know, false teachers are not terribly hard to spot. You, if you have some Bible knowledge, you'll recognize them by what they say and by what they leave out, meaning what they don't say and how they live. Someone a couple of years ago spent uh, a number of hours listening to probably one of the most popular television preachers in America today. I don't remember how many sermons he listened to, uh, but it was, it was quite a number of them. And he said he never, never, never mentions sin, ever. Never mentions forgiveness of sin. All he talks about is health and wealth and feeling good and looking at yourself in the mirror and building yourself up. But he never mentions sin. See, sometimes you tell a false teacher by what they say. Other times you tell them by what they don't say, what they leave out. 
and, and, and how they live. They pervert the message of Christ, Paul says. They worship their desires. They brag about things they should be ashamed of. They are earthly minded. So Paul says, if you want to pursue Christ-likeness, find godly examples. And then he says, avoid gospel enemies. There was a missionary uh, from, well, she was born in 1867. She died in 1951. Her name was Amy Carmichael. She was from Ireland. She spent 55 years of her life serving orphans in India and rescuing young girls who were being used for prostitution in Hindu temples. She's best known for some of her devotional writings. I've read some of them. Very good, very very thought-provoking. But one day, Amy Carmichael uh, had, had a group of her children that she was taking care of in, in, this, in, in her orphanage. She had, had taken this group of children to watch a goldsmith refining fire in the ancient ways that they, that they would re- refine the gold in this fire. Ancient ways of, of, of the Asian people. There was a man who was sitting by a small charcoal fire, and on the top of the coals he had a big red curved roof tile, and then he had another roof tile over the top of that, kind of like a lid. That was his homemade, they called it the crucible. Then he would take a mixture of salt and tamarind fruit and burnt brick dust. He called it his medicine for purifying the gold. He would put that down in that tile, and it would get very, very hot, very hot, a little bit of water in there with that salt and tamarind fruit and that, and that, that brick dust. And then he would take a glob of gold, and he would drop it down into that. He would kind of watch it for a moment. Then he would take tongs. He would lift the gold out. Then he would blow the fire hotter and hotter and hotter. Then he'd put it back in. Then he'd, he'd stick the lid back on. Then he'd take the lid back off and take the, take the gold out. And he went through this process for, for quite, quite some time. And in each time, he'd make the fire a little hotter. Each time, he'd leave the gold in a little bit longer. And he said to the children who were watching him, the gold, sank, the gold can't stand the heat initially, but, but the purer it gets, the hotter I can make the fire until it's finally pure. And so someone said to him, well, how do, how do you know when it's pure? He said, when I can see my face in it. When it is so, when all the dross is gone, he said, the reflection of my face is in the gold. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of what God does with us. Turn, if you would, as we close to Job 23. I want to read you some verses. You're you may be familiar with them. We'll wind up with these thoughts. Our God-given destiny is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Job 23, if you can turn there. That is His design for us. So as I said earlier, every trial, every hardship, every challenge, every blessing, every open door, every closed door, they're all designed by God to grow us in holiness, to increase our Christ-likeness. And, and if we are truly saved... Christ-likeness should be our desire. Job says he's in in the midst of all of his struggles. Job 23, we'll start to read in verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. He's basically saying, I'm looking for God in my trials, and I can't really see what God's doing. 
You know, I look to the right, I look to the left, I look behind me, I'm trying to find God in all of this, and I'm just struggling to see, but because I don't, I don't know, but then this great verse in verse 10, but He knows the way that I take. He says, I don't understand what's going on, but God does, when, and He knows the way that I take, and when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job says, God has me in the crucible. He said he's, he is dropping me into the fire day after day after day. And of course you know the story of Job, you know all the things he went through. And he said, I, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know why God's doing what he's doing. I can't see God in all these circumstances. But I know that God knows what's going on. And God knows the way that I'm taking. And when he has refined me, I will come forth as gold. You see, God is refining us. He is purifying us until, as that goldsmith in India so long ago, until he can see his face reflected in us. Be like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this life is challenging. All sorts of trials and sufferings and tribulations and losses and hardships. And, and there's great blessings and there's joy and there's peace. And we have so many wonderful things in Christ. But Lord, as we trudge our way through this sin-cursed world, there's just, there's just a lot of struggles. Sometimes we can't really see what God is doing in all of these things. What all of His purposes are. But we know that you know exactly what's going on. And we know that when you have tested us and refined us, we will become like gold in the fire. People will see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ reflected in our lives. Lord, help us to pursue Christ-likeness and look for godly examples and avoid gospel enemies. Lord, may we make certain that we know you as our Savior, that we have a growing relationship with the God of heaven. And help us, Lord, as we face the struggles of life, may we choose our priorities of serving you, walking with you, living for you, so that we can be like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.